I'm standing up here tonight having just gone through a, a joyous time in life, something obviously that has been a long time coming in terms of preparation for this evening with the elder assessment and, and everything that goes into that. And I would say I'm standing up here for two, two reasons. First, and I haven't confirmed this with any of the elders, but I'm pretty sure they recognized the lack of nice, solid beards on their eldership team. The lack of good facial hair was, uh, was very much evident and present, and so they decided they needed someone with a beard to be on the team. So that was the first one, probably primary. That's what I would think. Um, the second one, and on a more serious note, I'm, I'm up here tonight simply because of the grace of God. Simply because of God's grace in my life. And I, I won't take time, and I don't have time to tell my whole story and my whole life, but I'm sure all of us can relate to having experienced times of disappointment when we've sacrificed much. I'm sure we can relate to instances in life where things just haven't gone our way, deep personal pain, deep things in our lives that, that haven't materialized what we thought would happen things that were out of our control entirely, and yet we, we were faced with trying to deal with those things and trying to, to move forward in lives, even though things were so painful. We can experience, we've experienced times of, of isolation where we, we aren't around other Christians and we feel like we are isolated from the world, isolated from community, and, and striving for community, wanting that but not finding it available. Those are all things that I've experienced in my life, all things that were challenging, and, and I'm here tonight not because I have overcome, not because I have persevered, not because in my strength I did something great, and so now I'm here. I'm here simply because of the grace of God in my life, that I'm up here this evening, my faith intact because there were points of time in my life where I was ready to run away from my faith, and it's not because of myself that I'm here it's not even because of the other elders that are sitting in this room with me right now. It is simply because of the grace of God. And tonight is a beautiful reminder for me of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that says that God who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. And I think if we talked around all of Eternal City Church and engaged everyone, we would have similar stories of life that the grace of God has changed us by the gospel and is changing us by the gospel for his good, for our good, and for his glory. So I think in that we can collectively rejoice. With that in mind, we are going to move forward in our topic, Theology Untangled. Our series this, for the last several months, has dealt with a number of different topics, ranging from Calvinism and the tulip to baptism to various other things. And now we are on, on the topic of hell, the discussion of hell. And Chris already noted some of this, but I, I do think that this was the elders um, hazing the new guy. Um, first time preaching, you get hell. Um, I can picture Chris now looking at the list that was submitted for questions, seeing hell, texting Pete, hey, bro, are you ready? You have your assessment done. We need it by this date. So, while, while this is a very difficult topic to discuss, very difficult thing for us, 
I don't believe it's difficult, and I don't think it's complex, and I don't think it's complicated simply because Scripture is silent on this. It's not that Scripture isn't clear about what hell is. It's primarily complicated, primarily difficult for us emotionally. It's a challenge for us emotionally. When we think about an experience and, and consider death, there are times when we think about it in, in a macro level. So think about natural disasters that have occurred. Think about earthquakes, tsunamis, um, hurricanes, other things where, where massive amounts of people die. Even think about the current situation we're in where there's a virus that is killing hundreds and hundreds of people every day. And we think about these things and we consider what that means for life, but rarely in these instances of macro-level disasters, macro-level death, do we consider what that means for those people who have died. That of those thousands who have passed away, most likely they are not in heaven with God, but they are in hell. Rarely do we think about that, and rarely do we get emotional about that. But then when we think about it on a micro level, when we consider and experience death on that level where it's a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or someone we care about, someone we love, and they die, suddenly we begin to contemplate and think, what does life after death actually look like? What does it mean for someone to have passed from this life and not have experienced a relationship with Christ, not have known Jesus? What does that look like for them? And understandably, it is emotional. When death becomes a reality and, and the afterlife becomes a reality and hell becomes a reality, we should be emotional about it. It's not something to just be uncaring of. It's something that should emote in our lives. We should have thoughts towards this and have responses emotionally towards this. When we see someone pass from this life and we consider them a friend and a loved one and a, a family member and we are uncertain of where they stand before God, it should be challenging. It should be difficult for us. That's not an easy thing for us to contemplate. It's not enjoyable for us to contemplate. You know, many, many people, as they consider the emotions of hell, they, they take potentially two different paths. Some, there, there are multiple other, but two primary paths that we'll, we'll talk about in this discussion of is hell a just punishment for sin? The first one is universalism. Universalism is the idea that in the end, everyone will end up being saved. One way or the other, everyone makes their way to God. They make their way to heaven. There are some who will say, well, all people eventually become Christians. They trust in Christ. And so all people come to God through Christ in some particular way, whether in this life or the next. They trust in Christ eventually. The primary reason for universalism, the primary reason that, uh, that people espouse this view is because they consider the love of God to be over top and overarching of everything. And so they cannot emotionally rationalize or, or recognize that there is an eternal punishment in hell if God is love. So the result of that is universalism. Everyone is saved then. Because God is love, no, he would never send anyone to hell, no one would be in hell, so everyone is saved. The second position is called annihilationism. This is the teaching that hell is not eternal. Hell is not eternal conscious torment, but rather the souls of non-believers simply cease to exist. They, they no longer exist. 
people who argue for annihilations will, will use imagery from Scripture that talks about how that hell is a consuming fire or there is destruction in hell. And so they would say that because of those terminology, because of that, those words, because of the way the Bible describes this imagery, that souls of non-believers just cease to exist. They no longer exist. We're not going to take time to, to dig into all these passages. I was encourage you to go to the discussion guide that was emailed to you, as well as that's in the, the description on the YouTube link. Go look at that. There are a ton of verses in there for you to explore and navigate through for us related to annihilationism. And while, while the annihilationists would use more scripture than a universalist, they would go to scripture and say, this imagery here supports my position more so than a universalist would. I believe their position is still rooted primarily in just emotional discomfort with hell. Consider this quote. This is from John Stott. He is probably the most famous annihilationist in the last hundred years. He says, emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. There is, there is an emotional element to this that, that people come to the scriptures, people come to the Bible and say, I cannot reconcile this with how I feel. And so there must be another option, and these are options that, that people, have, people have taken. But even in the midst of this emotion, even in the midst of these competing views, we have to remain faithful to what Scripture says. We have to remain faithful to what Scripture teaches. And neither universalism nor annihilationism is consistent with what Scripture teaches. My goal tonight isn't to argue against those and, and show you all of the different texts that prove annihilationism and universalism are wrong. Because I'm coming at our time together as we will begin to explore Matthew 25 with this assumption that hell is a literal place of eternal conscious torment from which there is no escape or no relief. I'll say it again just so we're clear. Hell is a literal place of eternal conscious torment from which there is no escape or relief. So hell is real. Hell is a real, literal place. And for those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they will spend eternity, forever, existing in punishment from God. And with that assumption, we will go to Matthew chapter 25. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 this evening. And as, as you look at the screen, or if you have your Bible with you, consider turning to Matthew chapter 25, I want you to recall a time in your life where there was crisis. There was some type of crisis or panic in your life, a time of intense trouble, a time of difficulty, whatever comes to mind first, whatever it could be. Doesn't need to be anything extravagant or huge, just whatever you think of first when you think of, this was a time in my life where I experienced crisis. Hold that, keep it tucked in the back of your mind because we're going to revisit it later. As we think about the concept and the topic of hell, it's interesting to know that in all the New Testament, we, we don't hear primarily about hell from Paul or Peter or John or James or others. We hear about hell most, and we read about hell most from Jesus himself. Jesus provides the most detail in Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, about hell. It's not from epistles like we would think. So in Matthew chapter 25, setting the context for us a little bit, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, the disciples ask Jesus this question. They say, what will be the sign of your coming 
and the end of the age. And so Jesus spends two chapters walking through what will be the sign of the end of the age. What will be the sign of the end? And he concludes his section in verses 31 through 46 of Matthew 25 by saying there will be a final judgment. And he describes that for us. And he describes for us in this section that there will be a final judgment where the king on the throne, who is Jesus, comes and he says, I'm, I'm dividing all peoples into two groups. The group on my right, they are, they are the sheep. They are believers. The group on my left, they are, they are the goats. They are non-believers. So he describes two groups of people in this way at this final judgment. The word judgment in Greek, it's interesting for us to consider, is actually the, the, the word that's used there is the same word that we get crisis. In Greek, it's called crisis. We get the word crisis. So in this final judgment, this final time where Jesus is separating all peoples into two groups, he's saying this is the final crisis for all of mankind. For all of humankind, they will face a final crisis. Those on the right during this crisis, those who he calls his sheep, they have nothing to fear. They have nothing to worry. They have nothing to be concerned about. Because as, as we'll see through this chapter, Jesus says, where I'm taking you is to eternal life. Come inherit the kingdom. Those on the left, though, those on the left have everything to fear because while those on the right can rest in the atonement of God, they can rest in Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins, those on the left cannot claim the atonement of God has been effective for them. They cannot say, Christ's blood has been shed for me and so I am forgiven. They can't say that. So at this final judgment, this final crisis of all humankind, those on the right, they can go and they can be lacking all, all fear. They have no fear because the one that sits on the throne is the very one that they can point to as their salvation. The ones on the left, though, those goats that Jesus describes, they are in the ultimate crisis that any person could ever face in the history of mankind. And he does return as we read verse 31 here. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. A lot of times in this discussion of, in this discussion of hell, people cannot seem to reconcile the fact that God is glorified both in justice and mercy. He is glorified both in mercy and in justice, but you read very clearly there in verse 31, he doesn't come on a throne of power. He doesn't come on a throne of holiness. He doesn't come in any way other than to say, I am come in a glorious fashion on a throne of glory. So in this final judgment, God is glorified. Jesus is glorified both in justice for those who are on his left and mercy for those who are on his right. Many people stop at this idea of justice and they question whether an eternal punishment committed for temporary sins is really fair. Is it just? Is it just that someone would commit temporary sins here on this earth and for those temporary sins be subject to eternal punishment? The problem, though, is that question is flawed. The question in and of itself isn't even accurate. There's no such thing as temporary sin. There is no such thing as earthly temporary sins when you're dealing with infinite rejection of an infinitely holy God. 
God in his holiness demands perfection of all humans. And so he holds us accountable to that perfection. He holds us accountable to that standard to say, you must be perfect, you must be holy. Matthew chapter 12, we're reminded of where Jesus actually says that all people will be punished not for their sins, but for even the careless words they've spoken. Think about that. All humankind, all people will stand before God in judgment, in crisis, where he separates all people into two groups. And he says, not only am I going to judge you for the evil that you've done, I'm going to judge you for the simple careless words that you've said. How many careless words do we say? How many careless, thoughtless things do we say on a daily basis that, that condemn us? And so in this great and final separation, this isn't a matter of Jesus coming and saying, well, you, you did some temporary sins here on earth, and so for that there's eternal punishment. No, this is infinite, total, complete rejection of God. The judge of all the earth sitting on his throne, Jesus, he is sitting on his throne as an all-knowing, all-holy God. Consider that. The one who is judging is perfect, perfectly, infinitely holy. And not only that, he knows all things. He knows every detail of every aspect of our lives. He knows everything we've ever done. And so that when we stand guilty before him, we don't have a rebuttal. This isn't a courtroom where we are able to provide our defense. We have no defense. If we are not in Christ, if we are those on the left, we have no defense. We stand in silence before him. Not for temporary sins, but for continual, infinite rejection of a holy and infinitely perfect God. Romans 1.21 tells us that they knew God, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Romans chapter 1 very clearly indicates, as you read through that chapter, that, that people who would say this isn't fair, they're condemned because they knew God, but they didn't honor him as God. They chose to pursue other things. They chose to pursue idols rather than pursue God. So in the face of infinite rejection, God in his, God in his justice requires punishment. He requires infinite punishment. He requires total punishment, not for temporary sins, but for total infinite rejection. Because that's what our sins are. We may not think of them as being that big and that grand, but they are. They are looking at an infinitely holy God and saying, I don't want you. And that is infinite rejection of a perfect God. Some may stop at this point and say, well, well, is this, is this actually fair? Is it fair then because if someone were to be in hell, they would, they would clearly choose God. If they understood what this was, if, if as we read through Matthew 25, we come to this section and Jesus says, all those who reject me infinitely will be sent to eternal punishment, clearly they would want God. If they understood what hell was actually like, if these people were in hell, they would understand that they wanted God. There's no indication from that from Scripture, though. In fact, it's the very opposite Many people try to seem to argue that hell is the absence of the presence of God. In reality, though, it is not the absence of the presence of God. It is the absence of God's grace and mercy for those that are in hell. 
You see, God is still omnipresent. He is still there in hell. He's present with those who are in hell. And so in their suffering, those individuals who are in hell not only are experiencing the torment of eternal fire, but they are experiencing the wrath of God every single minute of every single day for eternity. With no escape, with no relief. And each one of those days, each one of those moments, they don't sit there wishing that they could be out of this and in heaven with God. They're sitting there cursing and damning the name of God and wanting him to be completely away from them, entirely away from them. If you think of a reality TV show, think of Survivor. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the, the idea of Survivor, what it is. If not, it's a competition where at the end of every show, the group gets together that's participating and they vote someone off the island. If hell were Survivor, the first vote off, and it would be unanimous, is to kick God out because they want nothing to do with him. They want absolutely nothing to do with him. So they are living in existence absent from the grace and mercy of God, and so they are eternally rejecting God. That's why, this is, that's why this is fair. That's why this is just. Because this is not a temporary thing. This is not a, a group of people who, who should they have desired God, they, they would have desired God if they had only wanted to, if they'd known what hell was, they would want God instead. No, they don't want anything to do with God. They're cursing the name of God. So Matthew 25, we see that the Son of Man comes in his glory with the angels with him and he sits on a glorious throne because it is in the glory of Jesus, it is in the glory of God where justice and mercy meet in a beautiful way. In a way that we on this earth can't really understand. And as we contemplate that, we think about in the idea of hell, the justice of God. That God is fit to punish sin because he is holy, because he is perfect, because he is all-knowing. He is fit to punish sin and send sinners to hell. The opposite side of that is mercy. He gives justice to those on the left. He gives mercy to those on the right. And what is that mercy based on? You see, an infinitely holy God requires an infinitely perfect sacrifice. No amount of imperfect sacrifice or work could ever bring about the mercy of God. No amount of time spent in hell could appease the wrath of God and send someone to heaven. And so for those on the right, for those that Jesus describes as his sheep, we will not stand before him on that final judgment, pointing to all of our works, pointing to everything we've done, pointing to all of the things that we have done for God or accomplished for God or all the things that we know, we will simply point and say the one on the throne, that king, the king in his glory, is also the one who sent himself to a cross, dying for us, suffering in our place, being the infinite perfect sacrifice, giving us his righteousness so that one day he could say in this final judgment, in this final crisis, for those on my right, my sheep, Come to eternal life. Inherit my kingdom. That's what he's going to say to us, not because of our own merit, but because of the, the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. What he did for us on the cross. We will one day stand in judgment 
And I envision with no words, when they say, why should you enter my kingdom? We simply point. We simply look at Jesus and say, it's because of you. Not offering our own defense, but pointing to the one who has done all things for us. And yet we still struggle with this idea of justice. We still struggle with this idea because if we consider hell to be real and we say, well, it is just for this to happen, how can I say that I am I'm happy? How can I say that I am rejoicing when someone I know, someone I love, someone I care about is in hell? That's an accusation many people bring against the idea of hell that, that by taking this position, we simply are rejoicing in the fact that there are sinners in hell. You know, it's an interesting concept to consider because we don't have a problem with justice on this earth. In fact, we want to see justice happen on this earth. Not sure if everyone follows, but a couple weeks ago, Harvey Weinstein was convicted and sentenced to 23 years in prison for one count of sexual assault and one count of rape. And we can debate whether or not 23 years in prison was enough time for for those crimes, but I think collectively we can rejoice and say, yes, that is justice being done, and we are happy about that. We're happy that justice takes place. When you think of a movie and you see a bad guy who's going around the whole movie causing more and more problems, killing people, doing all of these horrible things, at the end of the movie when the bad guy gets caught or gets killed, what's the response? We're happy. We, we want to see justice take place. And so we understand at a very earthly level, on a very temporary level, what justice is and what it should look like. Because we strive for it. When we see injustice in this world, we, we don't want that to continue. We want there to be justice. So we understand these things. But there is a very different thing when we consider justice on this earth and we consider eternal punishment in hell. Those are very different things. I think if we truly understood and recognized what hell is, eternal separation from the grace and mercy of God, eternal torment forever, no escape, no relief, we wouldn't wish hell on our worst enemies. We wouldn't wish hell on someone that we hated with all the fiber of our being who had wronged us in every particular way. We would never wish that upon them. So on this earth, I don't know if we can rightly reconcile hell emotionally to be able to say, I am happy that X person is now in hell. Nor do I think we should. I think, it, I think it's an emotional thing for us because it is. There's an emotional aspect to hell. And rather than trying to reconcile it by, by going in the, in the vein of universalism or annihilationism, We have to take our emotion that is present, that is there, and instead recognize the the deep pain that hell will be and seek to help people avoid it. Seek to share Christ with people in in, in every capacity that we can, in every opportunity that we can, because we recognize how bad it is, how how much of a crisis that will be for people, and we want to see them saved from that. 
We don't want people to experience the wrath of God because we know if they show up to that final judgment and they cannot point to the saving blood of Jesus Christ, they have nothing. They have nothing but pain, nothing but panic, nothing but anxiety, nothing but fear, and ultimately an eternity separated from the grace of God. And they are in crisis. They will be. This is a reality that's coming for countless peoples. Countless peoples who are running to hell as hard and as fast as they possibly can. I asked you to consider earlier and keep in the back of your mind a moment of crisis that you had in your life. A moment of panic. And, and think about all of the things that you experienced in that moment. Think of the anxiety. Think of the stress. Maybe you, had, you became physically ill from this. You became pained in your stomach. Maybe you had tears. You were crying. You were afraid. All of the different sensations, all the different emotions that you could have felt in that moment of crisis. Consider that and then blow it up infinitely. Take all of that anxiety, all of that stress and make it infinitely worse. That is what is waiting for those who do not trust in Christ. Small example from my life, a number of years ago when we first moved to Pittsburgh, we were driving, of course, down a hill because that's all there are around here. There's hills. Driving down a hill, it was snowing, only a couple of inches of snow. But as we're driving down this hill, there's a, there's a truck that's stopped in the middle of the road, and he's, he's turning left, I imagine, into a driveway. So I do what you normally would do, put your foot on the brake, try to stop the car. Car's not stopping. Car is just continuing to slide. And it's sliding down this hill and down this hill. And so in that moment, where I, I'm in crisis, I'm in panic mode. What do I do? How do, I, how do I get out of this? Elizabeth's sitting in the passenger seat and I imagine screaming. I don't remember, but I'm guessing she was because she's in panic mode too. So as we barrel towards this truck going down this hill, car not stopping, I'm thinking if I go right, I'm running into a, a giant hill. If I go left, there's cars coming the opposite way. So I'm potentially running into one of them and there's a truck right in front of me. So what am I going to do? So as I'm, as I'm coming towards this truck, getting closer and closer, at the very last minute, I notice there's a, there's a break in the traffic. And I quickly cut across the lane, actually drop into, well, it was probably this guy's yard, dropped into the guy's yard, came up out of the yard and back onto the road in front of the truck, not having hit anybody. I don't know how I did it. Probably because I'm a great driver, but I don't know. I'll chalk it up to that. I don't know for certain. But in that moment, all I experienced was panic, white knuckles on the steering wheel, shortness of breath, anxiety, I'm stressed, my heart's racing, all of those different things. In a silly example of nearly running into a truck on the road. And again, as we consider what those emotions and feelings will look like for those who are standing before God, an infinite crisis, it will make that momentary panic look like nothing. Because that, those sensations, that panic, that fear just blows up a million times, two million times, infinite. Because they're standing, standing before God, full reality knowing that their destination 
is eternity in hell. And they have no rebuttal. So it's completely appropriate for us as Christians who understand hell, who understand what it is, understand the reality of death, the reality of hell, it's perfectly okay for us when we see that happen, when someone we love, someone we know, we're not confident to say they are with Christ right now, it's perfectly okay to have emotion and to weep, to cry, to not be happy about the fact that someone we love is in hell. That's perfectly okay and acceptable, and I would say that it is right. It is proper for us as Christians who understand what that is going to be like for that person to emote. But then I would say it's, it's, not, it's not right for us, it's not good for us just to stop there, to weep over the fact that someone we love and someone we care for us has passed away and died and is now in hell. But it should spurn us, it should push us to action. It should push us to not celebrate that someone is in hell, not celebrate when we hear about thousands who are dying and going to hell, but rather push us to share Christ. We are the one people in the entire world who faithfully believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And as the church universal and as the church local eternal city, we have an opportunity to share Christ with people so that they could avoid that crisis. They can avoid final judgment, standing before God, knowing they are going to an eternity in hell if we would stop and share the gospel with them. Scripture says that people won't believe unless they hear, and they won't hear without a preacher. They won't hear without someone going and telling them. And so, for us, let's pray. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Pray for opportunities to, to share Christ with loved ones and with coworkers and with neighbors and with friends. And when those opportunities come, take advantage of them. Prepare yourself for them. Read and study to understand your scriptures, understand the gospel, so that when that opportunity comes, you're able to share the gospel with them. So Jesus is on the throne of glory. He's giving his sentence of justice and mercy, and he, he gives us a fascinating insight we've, we've touched on a little bit, that he separates these two peoples into two different groups. If you look at verse 35 and 36, Matthew 25, he gives a description for what is the difference between these two groups. He says, what's the difference between the group on my right and the group on my left? Verse 35, he describes those on the right. And he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then verse 40, if we drop there, he says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, if you look further down in verses 41 through 46, he gives the exact opposite description of those on the left. And he says in verse 45, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So Jesus is taking these two groups of people and he's making a distinction between them. He says, one group on my right, those who will inherit the kingdom, those who will have eternal life, they have showed mercy and they've showed compassion and they've showed kindness. 
to these, my brothers. Those on the left, they didn't care. They didn't care about the needs of other people. They went about their life the way they did, with little compassion, with little mercy. Now let's stop before we really dig into this for the last 10 minutes or so we have. And say from the start, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That, that is how someone enters into salvation with God. That is someone, how someone enters into union with God. Union with Christ is through grace, is by grace through faith. We understand that. Scripture is very clear on that. And that's why I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't say, those on my right are those who have believed in me, and those on my left are those who haven't believed in me. Although that's true, he says, those on my right are those who have cared for and been merciful and compassionate to these, the least of these, my brothers. And those on the left are those who have not. Jesus is saying that for those who will be on the right, his sheep, true Christians, true believers, are those who have been merciful, have been compassionate to other Christians, who when they saw a need in someone's life, they came alongside of that person and they cared for them and they helped them. That is the, that is the mark of a true Christian. That is the mark of a true believer. And it's important for us to always be inspecting our hearts, always be challenging our hearts and where we are. Hebrews chapter 3 is one of my favorite verses because the writer of Hebrews is actually telling us to do that. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. So it is, it is right for us, it's appropriate for us as Christians to look at our hearts and inspect them and say, where, where is my heart at in, in my life? Does my life match my faith? The thing that I'm saying over here, does it line up with how I'm living? And is how I'm living lining up with what I say I believe? Do our lives match our faith? When we hear about someone in Eternal City Church who is struggling physically, struggling emotionally, struggling spiritually, struggling financially, what is our heart response towards them? Is our immediate thought towards compassion? Is our immediate thought towards a compassion that moves us to actually do and act and help? Or is our response to say, as we'll look at in James, go be warmed and filled? Is our response when we hear about people who are struggling, especially now as we consider the situation we're in where people are losing their jobs and may, may struggle actually putting food on the table for their children, for their families, do we respond to them and say, well, if you had only done what you needed to to save up enough money for a crisis, you wouldn't be in this situation? Is that our response? Or do we hear about someone who's struggling, hear about someone who's need, and we go and we help them. Jesus says, when you do this to the least of these, my brothers, what does he say? When they were hungry, you gave them food. When they were thirsty, you gave them drink. Not when they were hungry, you lectured them about why they should have saved more. Or when they're in physical pain, you didn't just tell them to, to toughen up and deal with it. 
That's not the response of a true Christian. That's not the response of someone who, who Jesus says is going to be one day on my right inheriting the kingdom of God. Are we moved with compassion for people who are in need? Are we seeking to move towards them when we have opportunity? James chapter 2, I mentioned that we would get here. James chapter 2, verse 14 and 17. We'll read this quickly. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James and Jesus are completely and totally aligned with this. If we don't ever show practical love and mercy towards other Christians, our faith is dead. We have no faith. And what Jesus says is that that is a marker that we are in danger of hell. That we are, we are in danger of spending an eternity separated from the grace and mercy of God if we never show in any practical way our faith in a demonstration of love and care for other people. You might say, but I have good theology. I, I know a lot of scripture. It's all up here. I, I can, if, if Chris had asked me, I would have preached all these messages and done better than him. Maybe that's where we're at. You think, I have great theology. That won't stand in the final judgment. That won't stand in the final crisis of all humankind. If the only evidence of our faith is our theology, our faith is dead. And be prepared to hear, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, depart from me into eternal punishment. If that is the only fruit of our faith, don't be prepared to enter into the kingdom of God because it's not going to happen for us. Maybe you'd say, well, I don't know what's going on in the church. I don't know where the struggles are. I don't know where the pain is. I don't know any of these things. Might I suggest that that is just as, just as much of an indictment as knowing and not doing anything? Jesus' words aren't, well, if you, he- if you hear about something, do something. It's no, care for people. Care for people and live in a way that allows you to know what's happening in someone's life and do something about it. Care for people, not just if you hear about it, but seek out opportunities to do so. The point of Jesus' words is is ultimately that we should be moved to care for other Christians. And if we're not, we're basically saying that our faith isn't real. Our faith doesn't exist. So my suggestion for us is pretty practical, pretty easy. Let's ask people. If you don't know what's happening in someone's life, you don't know where they're struggling, where their pain is right now, ask them. It's one of the reasons we have GCCs. It's one of the reasons we gather together in small groups so that you can engage people with where they are, find out what's happening in their lives, and help them. And no, that's not going to happen immediately. I understand that relationships need to be built. But are you moving in a direction in your life, in your faith, that says, I want to care for people? I want to know what's happening in someone's life so that I can pray for them, so that I can care for them, so that I can bring a meal to them if they're in need, so that I can go and buy groceries for them if they are unable to buy them themselves. 
So that if I see a need in the church, I can go and help. And when we ask, and someone does share, I pray and I hope that our response is not go in peace, be warmed and filled. I hope that's never said at Eternal City Church. I hope that that, those words never come out of our mouths, that that's not something that is a mark of Eternal City Church. Go, be warmed and filled. So let us collectively strive to be a church that when someone looks in and sees Eternal City, they, they don't see that be warmed and filled. They see a church that genuinely loves and cares for one another, genuinely has compassion for one another. And let's pray for that as a church. Jesus says, as you do this to the least of these, you do this to Christ. You do this to him. So serve other people, love and care for other people. Not not to get salvation, but to showcase our faith. We've covered a lot of information tonight. We've covered a lot of different things related to hell. And I want to leave us with this. If you're a Christian watching this this evening, perhaps even a member of Eternal City Church. And you would say, I do lack mercy and compassion towards other Christians. My, my initial response to people is not one of compassion. My encouragement to you is run to the cross. Run to the cross. Run to Jesus to ask him for help to be merciful and compassionate, kind to those who are in need, and that the way you live would match what you say you believe. Ask him for help to understand the depths of the gospel so that, when, when, we were, that we, when we were suffering in our sin, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, go be warmed and filled. Jesus sacrificed himself, died in our place on the cross so that he could say to us, come enter my kingdom, inherit my kingdom. Ask that we might grow in, our, grow in grace and grow in faith. And then when we ask, when we pray, that God would have our hearts be compassionate and merciful and caring for those in need, let's go do it. Let's live it out. Let's showcase the faith that we say we believe. If you're a non-Christian, you'd say, I don't identify with Christ. I don't, I don't really care. My encouragement to you would be exactly the same. Run to the cross. What is waiting for you as someone who does not identify with Christ is the ultimate crisis that you will ever face in your entire life. It's the ultimate crisis that anyone could ever face. Judgment, for, judgment before God is worse than anything you could possibly imagine. And you should be afraid of that reality. I'm not here to scare you into Jesus. I'm not here to, to scare you into saying a prayer. It's not, that's not the intent but you have to understand the reality of what's coming in the future. You have to understand that what is coming is crisis. It is dangerous for you, the ultimate danger you could ever face. We can all relate to probably having played in the street at some point in times in our life. Maybe the, the ball we were playing with bounced into the street and we went to go and get that ball or we were simply playing in the street. And down the road, you see a truck coming towards you. Now, a, a smart kid would get out of the way of the danger. They'd run back to the yard. They'd run back to the sidewalk. Not simply out of fear, but because they know there's safety on that sidewalk. There's, there's life on that sidewalk. 
There's life in that yard. Hell is coming down the street for those who don't know Christ. Run to the sidewalk. Run to the cross. Because there's safety there. But not only safety, but there's life. There's life and there's joy. And there's the love of God, which surpasses anything that we could ever possibly imagine there being. So that one day, we stand before God in the final judgment, and he separates all humans into two different groups. And my prayer for you, if you don't know Christ now, is that you would run to that king on the throne so that one day he can say to you, come into eternal life, inherit my kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the reality of hell. Not because it's easy for us, God, but it is something that, that we recognize to be true and it's something that, that you have provided a way for us to be saved from. You have, you have given us Jesus. You have sacrificed of yourself for your glory and for our good. And God, for that we praise you. For that we thank you. For that we remember the shed blood of Jesus and his broken body on our behalf as our substitute. Thank you for your word. We pray that as we, as we leave this live stream and we leave gathering virtually as the body of the local church, Eternal City, that we would be caring for one another well this week. In Jesus' name, amen.